Hello, welcome to season one, episode two of Haunted Picture Palace, uh, with me, Ben. And me, Amelia. Yes. Hi. Hello. Oh, well, we've, I've already said hello. So today we're talking about uh, Pender's Fen, the television play from 1974 that first aired in the Play for Today strand on BBC One, I believe. Uh, although, to be honest, it might have been BBC Two. I'm not certain. But it was... Uh, aired in 1974, repeated the following year, and then languished in the archives until uh, 1990 when Channel 4 gave it a repeat. And uh, somebody taped it off the telly in, uh, on the Channel 4 repeat, and then some years later that was digitised. And when I was young, without wishing to go all um, LCD sound system, you weren't there, man, on mm. everybody. When I was young, that the way you had to see this was you had to know somebody who had a copy, or if you were lucky like me, you found it on a dodgy torrent site and downloaded it. Because... It was a thing that was talked about before it was really seen. So there's still something that feels slightly odd about watching it in the cleaned up high quality that's available in now. Part of me still feels like you should be sort of squinting through the the snow of decaying oxide on a third generation TV rip to see it. But it is out there in the world. And uh, if you haven't seen it, I do strongly recommend it. I will say as well, um, it would be useful to have an idea of what a play for today is, if you wouldn't mind. Very good point. That was an anthology series of television plays, as distinct from serials. So each week would be something else with a different crew, different writer, different actors, different characters, often a different director. Um, It's the sort of thing that doesn't really exist on telly anymore so much except for things like Inside Number 9 and uh, Black Mirror you pointed out Black Mirror yes I would say has a play for today um, flavour sometimes overarching themes so Black Mirror is obviously the existential dread we all feel about technology yeah it's it's an interesting idea that I think would translate quite nicely now in a way that it's not actually done so if you're listening television um, <laughs> when are we going to put a theme tune in here? When are we going to put a theme tune in here? Now is a very good point. Put the theme tune in now. <laughs> okay, so should we crack on? Let's crack on. So we Fender Sven opens with the sound of Elgar on the soundtrack from The Dream of Gerontis, and we meet young Stephen who, I think it's fair to say, is stuck up, uh, pretentious. <laughs> I like that you dove in with that and ignored the ripped arm-clutching barbed wire. I did ignore that, yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah, I suppose it's Elgar and the electronic music noise of Paddy Russell of the Radiophonic Workshop, which yeah come together in a quite startling and unpleasant way. It's true, and I think, you know, you and I spend a lot of time in graveyards. It's true. Um... So to have that opening shot and be like, ah, peaceful English country garden, (laughs) our homeland, the graveyard. And then, oh, lovely, some kind of scrunchy, angry Elgar (laughs) for our (laughs) afternoon viewing. Um, Yes, we meet Stephen and he's practically praying over his books. The music stops abruptly and uh, his incredibly wallpaper bland mother has crept in, apologises just on the basis of a look. (laughs) <laughs> and literally describes classical music as good music. We like, we you know, we we love... We like you to like good music, Stephen, but it was awfully loud. Awfully loud, Stephen. Awfully loud. I will say, this is, and again, we won't be going through it in razor, razor sharp detail, 
but just this opening scene tells you a lot anyway because his desk it's terrible feng shui i'm not gonna lie (laughs) but his desk is facing directly into the countryside like there's nowhere else for him to look Hmm. he is constantly faced with either the work that he's doing which is writing some incredibly like over the top loving words about elgar's work yeah about elgar's work but also about sort of the questions that elgar's work raises right so that's what is you know what happens to the soul after we die and uh you know the opening lines are oh my country i am one of your sons um and at this point that is how he sees himself and that will that will change as we go through oh my country i'm one of your sons but it's all right mother you've ruined it now (laughs) what an awful bastard okay yes it's the very very first time as well in in that written work that we hear him describe a male singing in a woman's voice as unearthly yes which is not the same as the key word we'll find later, but unearthly is... It, I mean, it is implied that it is unnatural in some way, but we'll come back to that. They're Protestants. He's the son. Yes. Oh, yes, because his father's working on his sermon, so uh, we yes. know that this is a rectory. And he makes reference to permanently feeling judged in general, like as in all of life is judged by something higher than itself. The other thing we find out about him at this early juncture is that he's in the cadets. Uh, Yes, just after the ridiculous um, mother and son moment, he is doing two stomps into military boots and military dress up. And then we meet Hot West Country Milkman. (laughs) His name is Joel, bless him. Yep. And he's a bit of a Hollyoaks fitty. You know? What do you mean by Hollyoaks? Hollyoaks level fitty, where they're not quite page three. Of I don't know, look at Milkman Monthly. Oh yeah. But they are pleasant and they have a terrible friend. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. And the, the milkman cometh and uh Stephen is down the stairs quicker than you can say crush on the milkman. Mm. And bless his cotton socks, he gets to say, I wish Joel would like me. Yeah. He's gone down all all the flutter and his anklets or something aren't straight. Something of his webbing and not straight. Uh, Joel notices this and uh, and mocks him. Yeah. Because um, that I wish Joel would like me comes just after his sort of, again, rather priggish. Some of us are learning to defend our country. <laughs> uh, which, of course, doesn't. I mean, it's not, it's not going to indeed. It's him, not how it? to make friends and influence people. No. no, it's how to irritate a sexy milkman. Yeah. Um, but interestingly, I really like Joel's character. Joel is one of these people that I think we've all met where. I mean, I'm not going to lie, I'm also one of them, where everything is a slight flirt. Um, <laughs> everyone you talk to, there's no intention behind it. It's just talking is flirting. So even in that little exchange, of course, it's going to make poor um, repressed Stephen feel a bit dodged that this sweet guy has, in a tank top, BT dubs. Yeah, a has... tight, a tight tank top. <laughs> I don't mean to labour the point here. Uh... <laughs> but he's dressed... Like a hot milkman. Hot milkman. Um, yeah, it's just just effortlessly as well. Uh, just, the uh, hot milkman. Yeah, the delivering oh, <laughs> delivering fresh hot milk. Um, How unpleasant. Oh yeah. But it, it is. I think it it is important to see that little bit of vulnerability uh, from uh, Stephen, who is seventeen at this point. Yes. His character is seventeen years old. And the parents commenting on how he's clueless. They do it then. Yes. You know. Yes. The, the the parents are uh, clued into the fact that he has this crush on the milkman, and their only comment, uh, you know, a vicar and his wife in sort of seventies Middle England, their only comment is it's a little bit 
a little bit obvious to have a crush on the yeah. woman and that Stephen is so unaware yes. at such a late age. So unaware at such a late age. And yet, I mean, Dad clearly knows. Oh, spoiler alert, he's a homosexual, right? This yeah, we're we, inferring. I mean, yes, and it is... Well, actually, I, I feel like it's sort of fairly clear fairly early on yes. to us, although not to Stephen, or at least... Deliberately, not, yeah. not consciously to Stephen, yes. He exactly. Um, and it's supposed to be, I think it's supposed to be glaringly obvious and not in a tasteless way or, or something, but no. certainly so that it's that when you are ever so slightly older than 17 and you're looking at 17-year-olds going, oh, we all know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we all know what you're feeling. Will you hurry up and get there? Uh, a late spring never lies is, is how his dad essentially, in very subtle terms, tells him that he knows tells us i don't know yes if, um, he tells he tells us yes we'll come come back to that but yes i think that vulnerability that we see the way he sort of very plaintively tells his mother mm. i wish that, that joel would like me is important because now we go to debate class um yes with the terrifying nightmare of indoctrinated children singing jerusalem yes well it's um it's an all boys school isn't it it's a, mm. it's a 70s british all boys school which mm-hmm. anytime they appear in media is always as a sort of terribly unpleasant and painful place for sensitive children to be. Yeah. I feel like the uh, scenes in the school do owe a debt to If, the Lindsay Anderson film starring Malcolm McDowell from 1968, which casts a shadow over anything set in those uh, (laughs) environs to this day. Uh, We we next uh, follow up with, with young Stephen when he's in debate class one yep. assumes or something where uh, where he is talking about he's talking about censorship he's talking about public decency yes who was jesus yes is the program of course, that yes. angers him um and feels blasphemous and he's waving about a picture of the mother and father of england yes a, a couple who are identified only in the credits as the man and the woman but who bear a striking resemblance to uh, Mary Whitehouse mm-hmm. and Malcolm Muggeridge, who are no relation. around about this time, <laughs> mm. who, yes, at around about this time were figureheads of an organisation called the Festival of Light, um, who were morality ca- campaigners, sort of trying to clean up television and would come down on things very much like who was Jesus, mm. um, but also anything that was... Uh, actually, I don't imagine they liked this very much at all. I don't imagine that Penders Fen was up their street at all uh, and not just because they are clearly the villains of the piece almost quite literally but it is Stephen who is passionately arguing for censorship and for yes. the traditional British very much almost proto-fascist sort of blood and soil yeah I think any 17 year old that calls anything on television atheistic trash yes has leanings towards getting a quite questionable tattoo later in life Yes, you know, and I don't mean to imply by the, the he's not there's not really malice in him. I, by saying I think this, there I don't is mean in the to, beginning. Well, I yes, d- but yeah, I do. I believe that he's so frightened of being whatever he is. Yeah, that anything that resembles that disgusts him, and he would happily stamp on it till it died. No, that's fair. I just don't mean to imply that he is sort of like a little skinhead or something no or, not at all he's too weak rough mm. you know he's a he's a very sensitive little boy we have skipped over a scene that is i think important uh, well it's important and it's ambiguous so we are 
looking up, we don't see any characters, but we can hear Stephen and Honeybone having a discussion. Sexy name, sexy kid. <laughs> They're speaking about some Greek lettering that we can see written um, up near the ceiling of whatever room they're in. And then that switches to Latin. And they're discussing what each one of them means. Um, and what is it that he says? He says... Discover thyself. Right, to which Honeybone makes um, the typical teenage joke of... What is it? Discover... Uncover thy ass, more Uncover like. Uncover thy ass, more like. Honeybone is, is not a sophisticated young scholar of classics. Like, no, uh, you can tell that, because he's got a West Country accent. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. But yes, he's, and he is scolded in a cute way by the voice of Stephen, saying that's dirty. That's dirty. Yes, Stephen has hang-ups about a great many, many things. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but I felt like that scene was important because it it not only is the only moment that they are tender in real life, <laughs> we'll come to that. Yeah, we never get to see Stephen acting like a schoolboy, really. No. I mean, in some ways. We never get to see him with his friends. He doesn't seem to have any. I don't think he does have any. I think that's actually what they mean by him being clueless or him be it's so, you know, mm. being so out of the loop at such an old age, if you like. Yes. In a teenage sense. But the reason I mention it as well is because there's an occult undertone to that of knowing things that other boys around you don't know. But also we then go into the sort of saying things without fully embodying them. Seems to be a theme of the first sort of two sections of this film sure. where you just go parrot parrot fashion and everyone goes <laughs> oh <laughs> you know <laughs> yes uh, without actually meaning a single word you're saying and he's certainly super unsure but he can at least tell you what each symbol on that weird wall means yes also discover thyself is very much what Stephen goes on to do yeah for the rest of the film it's one of the reasons i think it's important to sort of give a a portrait of Stephen as he is in this section of the film and why we talk about it is because he won't stay like this for long and no. Stephen at the end of the film is likeable is a yes <laughs> um, also again sorry to bring it back to this moment but I Please. thought it was important it made me wonder and I discussed this with you off air if whether or not they had had a an experience together that might lead to the way Honeybone behaves with him later on in that yeah. very experimental way, in that very jeering way. They do sound close and friendly, but it's the only time we hear them like that. So it'll be interesting to see how dirty things got. <laughs> Following this uh, scene at school, we go to a town meeting where Mr Arne, who is a playwright who lives next door to the Franklins, yes. is speaking at length and expanding upon his left-wing socialist opinions uh, that he holds. Um, the play was... Uh, written by a man called David Rudkin, and um, it is widely thought that uh, Mr. Arne is a portrait of the artist. There is a lot of Mr. Rudkin in Mr. Arne. I will say that these village meetings are pretty much like this now in the Cotswolds. He would be represented by like an angry gardener who wears salmon pink trousers and is richer than any gardener in the country, but it would still happen. <laughs> you know, these conversations are still a real thing with a lot of the same characters that turn up, so there's a lot of tropes in there. The kind of busybody in the post office, all of the... It's interesting. But the um, the meeting is chaired by the local vicar, as probably still yep, happens. same, yep. And um, young Stephen does not like Mr Arne's talk. They're talking sort of indirectly about strikes that are going on, but Mr. Arne brings it around to the first reference to things being not quite as they ought to be. He makes reference to the secret 
government research or something similar going on underneath the fen that that is that they are not supposed to know about it's an official secret of some kind but it seems to be known from the shots of the crowd that people seem to recognize this mm. seems to be known that there is something untoward and or unusual happening underneath oh, yes. the fen yes and this is this is the first appearance of a theme that will be important later on both in the literal sense uh, but also metaphorically it's the first idea that there is something in the ground that is restive in some way that is that is being repressed is being hidden yeah um, and is occulted yes Stephen doesn't like this sort of talk and he applauds very vigorously when uh, and, and as an older gent says that the people of England will just not stand for a dictatorship you know which is the sort of thing that you would expect like an old man to agree with and Stephen Stephen is very excited about this and very down on uh, on Mr Arne mm. So, yes, Stephen's not very happy about it. He's not happy about it for different reasons to perhaps anyone else in the room. I feel like he's the epitome of triggered, right? Because we're talking about secrets. We're talking about somebody who is clearly a blatant atheist, somebody who's going against what his father is saying, for example. His father, by the way, is a wonderful character in that scene as well. He's a wonderful character. I, I adore his father. Just, just generally, a lot of my notes have been his father's a wonderful, kind, lovely man. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and um, he allows everyone. The father allows everyone to have the space and facilitates this meeting really beautifully. In complete contrast to Stephen, who, although he's not holding the meeting in any way, has this kind of look of brutal indignation throughout the whole thing he is starting to agree with um the writer he's starting mm. to agree with him to a point he's having his head turned if you like but there's this idea that Stephen, for me that Stephen is communicating some very autistic spectrum behavior he is not processing things at the same pace as the other people around him at the same frequency sometimes he gets things incredibly quickly Sometimes he is left staring while other people's processes work much quicker. And again, this filter, the filter is missing. So when he gets home, he is doing the vicar's son equivalent of effing and jeffing about the the writer. And yes. he mentions, you know, in his spew, in his blurt, if you like, coming back from that meeting, that it's the shaking. It's the, why aren't you more outraged? Why aren't you as outraged as me? But also accusing the writer of being an unnatural an unnatural i think stephen is sort of taken by some of the things that mr arn the writer says but it's just that he's shaking that he has almost that he has the temerity to stand up there and and say them and this is something objectionable about the whole thing that is sort of uh, but something that comes out where he says i think he's probably unnatural uh, and you can see it in his, his plays yes you can see it in his plays and that's why he doesn't have any children god doesn't make mistakes you know, his wife's unnatural, he's unnatural. He's unnatural. Maybe that's why Maybe that's he why. can't. Yeah. The response to this from Blandy McBlanderson, the wife, the mother, is to say that he can be gr uh, grotesque. Grotesque. With real feeling as well, like more than we've seen from her before, yes. really. Or will we'll very much again. Neither of his parents are given to they, strong outbursts of emotion in yeah, that way. They don't do emotion, which is probably why he does so much emotion, but we'll, that's a different point. Hmm. So... Then we come to a Stephen's eye view of fun. Yeah. So we are looking at a car in a sort of parked in a lay-by or in a field, clearly full of teenagers, chock full of hormones. 
and laughing and giggling together in in the darkness um we're we're too far away this is why i say a steven's eye view because we're too far away to connect with them we never see faces really as a viewer you don't know if they're having sex or listening to music or what's happening in that car i think one of them there's a because we hear the voices from the car yeah. i think one of the women shouts something like get your hands off or pansy yeah. or something there is certainly implied sort of heavy petting if you'd but like it's deliberately confusing as well you know it's... yeah we don't we don't get to see what no we, we don't get close but then we get very close to a man who's been on a bit on fire a bit on fire mm. bron i believe his name is brot b-r-o-t-t thank you the man he says the man in the fire, in the fire. with these amazing prosthetics that look very um sci-fi they look fully sci-fi to me they don't look like a man who's burnt they look like he's got rocks growing on him but it's, it's yeah, a good or it, effect it's, i mean it looks charred but as if he's been transmuted in some mm. way or something but yes not it doesn't look like he's got too close to the stove it looks like something really <laughs> really awful has happened to him actually yeah. it's quite a nice uh, nicely done thing yeah and, um, and it messes up the f- dogging fun times <laughs> and then we sort of see his mother trying to get to him in a hospital you know it changes scene and she's mortified because he looks pretty messed up but the people sat around his bed are i assume a doctor but also a soldier and a policeman who all look up and do the exact same face because hmm. she has to really fight to get they don't want to let her no, anywhere they try near not to let her try not to let her in at all so this is clearly part of the secret that was being spoken about in the meeting um Oh, yes. So, Stephen's been dreaming. So, in an effort, once again, to attempt to impress authority, which he never succeeds at, by the way, (laughs) Stephen thinks, I know what this army man will like. My dream where I was a heretic. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But given that you're, uh, among many other strings to your bow, you're also a professional dream interpreter. (laughs) I am a a professional dream interpreter. If you came to me with a dream in which there's a shiny black demon on your dad's spire, I would give you a withering look, right? Even, come on, you can you can dream better than that. Which... An even bigger withering look than uh, Mr Cook the teacher gives him when uh, Stephen starts on unrolling this uh, story in class with zero encouragement from anybody Absolutely else. nothing. No, absolutely nothing. I am one of the few people where, you know, I like you telling me your dreams. You want to email me a dream? Let's do this. But, <laughs> you know... Palace at gmail.com. Exactly, but not... In my classroom. Anyway, so, shiny black demon on daddy's spire, turns it into an angel in his mind, and then turns the demon into an angel Mm. in his mind, and then turns it back to a shiny demon when he realises he has the power to do so. And they discuss how this is Manichaean. Yeah, Manichaean. Manichaean. Does it matter? I don't think so. Okay, cool. And a heresy. I love the word heresy. I really do. He knows a lot about religion, Stephen. Yeah, he does but he doesn't understand a lot about religion so he knows that manichaeanism is a heresy yes but he doesn't quite understand why can you take us through manichaeanism it's the belief that there there are forces of light and there are forces of darkness that are in constant battle uh, as is explained by ably explained by Mr Cook for yeah. viewers who are not quite so well up on their heresies. He knows a lot about religion, right? Yeah. But he's protesting too much. He's using that that knowledge of religion to justify repression. Stephen, I mean. he's Stephen is using his knowledge of religion to 
repress any negative feeling or any unwanted feeling every minute of every day. It must be exhausting. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, he brightly says, a heresy, sir, or something along those yeah, lines. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Like, without, without any kind of depth of feeling behind it or of what that might entail or mean. It's a, mm -hmm. he, he does know that it's a heresy, but he's obviously never really thought about it. But I think it's significant that um, it is his, his willpower that turns a devil into an angel and then back again, right? Yes. So it is the sense that he can control thoughts. He can control his evil thoughts. He can make his evil thoughts good, but also he can make his good thoughts evil. Yes, absolutely. So then Honeybone suggests that they boil him in oil, right? Yes, because it's another... Also, it's the reason they want to boil him in oil is not just because he's a boring sod who tells them about his Manichaean strange dreams, but also that he's never quite fit in that the teacher says that he doesn't if only you'd applied that you know fertile dreaming brain to the rugger field yeah. so um it's it's the first of probably the first but it's certainly one of many indications that he does not fit in with the other boys he's not um he's yeah not, doesn't, hasn't got the school spirit no but also it seems to be a biblical reference right um the boiled in oil uh there's debate about which apostle was boiled in oil, but ah. Saint John was supposed to have survived. Oh, that's interesting. Um, I've I've written that it has a slight erotic charge to it. Um, yeah, I guess. But I could just be I could just be a, a vile pervert. Why not both? Well, yes, I suppose. Um, every bit of authority ignores every time Stephen is clever. <laughs> His intelligence is just absolutely abandoned. Oh, the rebels. <laughs> the rebel's allotment is dreamy <sighs> before he gets there briefly very quickly he comes across a man who is putting up a road closed sign on a bit of bit of road funnily enough um <laughs> and he spelt the name of the village wrong and they live in um pin vin uh, but uh he has he's put up the word pin pin fin with pin an f fin stephen protests this and says it isn't it isn't right and the reason i mention this here and now is because it'll a it'll come up again later, but b this is the genesis of the story, right? Pinfin is a real place in Worcestershire. Yes. And um, and uh, David Redkin, who wrote it, has has gone on record as saying that this is a thing that happened to him. He saw he saw yeah. a sign saying road close, and it was the wrong name, and he discovered that it w did used to be called that. And and before that, it was uh, the Pendefin. Um, ultimately, Pender's Fen, the Fen of King Pender, who will be important later, will come in. Uh, right. Oh, the rebels. <laughs> the rebels' allotment is dreamy. Right. Mr. and Mrs. Arne's garden is dreamy. There we go. The allotment mm. is absolute heaven. Mr. Arne, uh, he almost flirts with Vicar Dad. They have a little flirty exchange. I've called him Handsome Dad because he is quite handsome in a kind of I've not seen the sun and I love God way. Arne's girlfriend, or wife, sorry, Mrs. Arne. Uh, is a little hedge witch and bitch face the cat yes i'm never quite sure whether i think it's that's bitch the face name the cat. of the cat or whether she's just calling the cat a bitch face no she's i think she's yeah but yeah bitch face here there doesn't seem to be any malice in it so no. it could be the name of the cat i think they've called their cat bitch face it would it would it does seem to fit them somehow you can't imagine i imagine he named he, it yeah yeah he, he clearly isn't an animal lover mrs Arn is putting a little leaf poultice on the cat's ear yes and uh, Stephen asks her why she doesn't just go to the vet for him to put a poultice on 
and she she says, "Well, um, the hmm. cat would uh, would notice that and knock it off, where she doesn't notice a leaf." Yeah. Um, which I had flagged up because to me it's the first little chink of sort of tiny amount of anarchy. In it's it's Stephen's introduction to the mm. idea that you don't always have to defer to authority. Authority. Yeah. This sort of patriarchal, juridical, legal societal authority yeah so Stephen and his father have quite a nice connection their strongest connection is through philosophy and it's where we realize that Stephen is ultimately completely insecure in his belief system but what's lovely is that his dad doesn't really ever well one his dad doesn't give a single solitary bloody straight answer in the entire film hmm. right there's no yes or no but two he encourages Stephen to think a lot more than Stephen does so there's there's a lot more of the um well why do you think that is um moral questions uh things about belief and faith and truth and ultimately i suppose sexuality right yeah. this is where this is where stephen's father says hey here's what dreams mean i mean he's wrong but it's it's a tv show so we'll allow it he describes dreams as a truth about yourself that you hide from when you're awake i mean again I don't think that's actually his meaning for all of dreams. I do think that he's still trying to encourage Stephen to tell him something. Yes. You know, or yes. to be or to, truthful. To, and to examine, examine, yeah, truth in his own beliefs. And then, you know, and saying, acknowledge that truth and then act on it. So he's yes. even encouraging that as well. Yeah. He's saying, please have a look at the truth and then act on it as and when. And then to which Stephen says, you believe in God, right? Yes, and, and his father says pointedly, I believe in truth. Yeah. Yes, which doesn't necessarily mean he doesn't believe in God, but um, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> it doesn't necessarily mean do, that. Do, 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 yeah. Do, 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 do. Uh, now, so now's yes. my time to shine. Amazing yes. Angel Rugby Scrum Dream. Yes. Yes, I love this. <laughs> so, earlier in the show, Stephen was told he couldn't really play rugger <laughs> right he couldn't play rugby no um he was rubbish at it rubbish. and uh didn't do the house any good you know the you know yes and for which um, he should be boiled in oil per yeah. honey bones rather ghoulish request so obviously rugby will be on the brain um rugby will be in the subconscious already it's been picked up by the brain that day what's interesting is the focus on sexy boy legs and grunting and scrum behaviour, which is possibly why poor Stephen is not very good at rugby, because poor Stephen is distracted by rugby. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you know? yeah. Um, but and also, he's, he's not a musk, you know, he's a scrawny little fella. No, but I will say not many of them were either. Mm. You know, they are just boys no, that's true. Um, in, an, in an environment where everybody's quite fit, they're quite athletically healthy. Yes. But there wasn't anyone that was like a little tiny beefcake. This is just no, that's true. the yeah. most skin-on-skin skin action that this kid is going to get while he's discovering his sexuality. Everyone's a bit covered in mud. He then gets mud flung at him. Yes, it looks like poo. What it looks like is the the writer of this read one book on Freudian dream theory and was like, yes, this is the one for me. Gays love poo. Stuck in the anal phase, my friend. But it's this amazing stuff where he's having this sort of poo mud stuff flung at him in, in parts of that dream and he has a kind of perspex screen in yeah, front of him. Yeah, there's a see-through plastic shield which he, the mud cannot penetrate yeah. but also he can't be heard behind it. You know, he's isolated from good and bad. Yes. 
He dreams about, he dreams about him first. Yes. Uh, yes. So and then, then we get And then when he wakes the Extremely sensual touching for a seventies film where a boy touches another boy. Congratulations, Pendus Fen. Just gorgeous, actually. Really gorgeous. Um no real facial expression, but certainly like clearly living out a fantasy. And it's interesting that his subconscious did this as soon as his father had had a chat about truth. So obviously yes. he's a his some somewhere in his unconscious mind he knows that the truth is he wants to bang Honeybone. That's right. It's something that is his, he hides from when he's awake. Yeah, exactly. And uh, is now acting on, you know, he's yes, acting on within the dream. The dream. And Honeybone um, is, is clearly nude here as well. You know, he he's is, stripped yes. to the waist. His, and his it, penis is on fire. Yeah, well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Burning the, um, loins. The actor, it, so I should say that a fair amount of the background information from this comes from the book, I'll, I'll credit it, of Mud and Flame, the Pendersfen source book by Matthew Hall and James Machin, published by Stranger Tractor a couple of years ago. And in that, there's an interview with the actor who plays Honeybone, who says that the pyrotechnics that produced the flame were iron filings to make it sort of fizz. Oh, cool. But he did, it, it, it did have a deleterious effect on his pubic hair. Um, oh, bless. So he suffered for his art. Oh, it's not how you want to find out, is it? <laughs> um, this is clearly a wet dream as well. Just putting it out there. <laughs> I mean, it, it's extraordinarily sensual. I really think, you know, considering, yeah. as I say, that this went out on just a, a, a normal BBC channel in the evening uh, in the mid 70s. So it's what it's 50. It's pushing 50 years old, 47 years old this yeah. year. And I say that about the wet dream, not just because like it was sexy, but because there's this shot of a demon on Stephen's chest once he's opened his eyes and he has one hand out of the blanket one hand under the blanket yes. which is the universal sign for don't come in mum right <laughs> um, but yeah it's it's a really kind of horrifying moment to have it's not even much of a demon that we see we see this masked figure over him and then the masked figure morphs into one of the men's faces either Milton Joel or Honeybone. Honeybone. It is difficult to tell. I've looked at it a couple of times and I really cannot tell. Also, it does not really matter no, he has a type. which one he, it is. Yeah. Exactly, they do look similar. But then there's a shot away from him as well, from the other corner of the room, hmm. like he's watching himself. And I will say, you know, the idea of a demon or a little witch perched on the chest is incredibly common throughout history. It's one of the things that really fascinates me about the law surrounding the little old woman that sits on your chest, right? It's it's a succubus, incubus, oh, all okay. of these things. But it turns out it's all sleep apnea. Mm. So when he can't move and he's staring at it and he's in horror and it's on him, all of that is classic sleep apnea stuff that manifests differently for different people. So if there's the sleep apnea demon that leaves, lives in the corner of your room, that's fine. And if there's one that actually touches you, that's fine. But it is just your brain trying to make sense of a physical sensation that happens to your body. Yeah. Where... But also because he's paralysed, right? Yeah, so, that's you know, it. But... He, he is, also he is stuck, as in yeah. he is beginning to realise things about himself, but he cannot move. Yeah, and essentially, again, if I was to look at it from a slightly scientific perspective, that is the chemical that would normally make you move once you're awake not quite flooding your body in mm. time so the brain is awake but the body hasn't had a chance to catch up so yeah chronic sleep apnea poor sausage um, by the way super common around adolescence and particularly the ages of 16 17 it's shot in a very matter of fact way as yeah. well with the, the demon on his chest the uh, it was directed by 
uh, a man called Alan Clark, who was a director of uh, some repute. He went on to, to work in feature films, but he was known for a more naturalistic style. I think probably his most famous productions would be uh, Scum and The Firm, which are about football hooliganism and boys in Borstal. And um, they're not documentaries, but they're very much matter of fact. There's, there's nothing sort of supernatural about them. And I think all of the supernatural happenings that in Pender's Fen, if you'd like, are filmed very naturalistically. There's yeah. no there's no music. Uh, things appear and disappear just with a, a cut. There's no sort of puffs of smoke or dissolves <laughs> or anything like that. They're yeah. just they're very matter of fact. They exist or they don't, you know, or they exist and then they don't. Um, and yeah, just a silent shot of this demon perched on his chest that then vanishes. Do you know what? I like to say when I'm sweating in bed, I've had a sexy dream and then there's been a demon on my chest. I'm afraid I, I couldn't tell you. Please, please enlighten me. Unnatural. Unnatural. Poor sausage. Which, it's an admission and it's a, it's an accusation. Yeah. To himself. Yeah. And the situation. I'd like to bring it back here to where I said before that I wonder if some sexual escapade had taken place between um, Honeybone and Stephen. Stephen looks grossly underslept in the next scene and we overhear the drill sergeant, if you like, saying, where's that bloody idiot Stephen? And sends Honeybone to go and get him, right? Yeah. And But we never see any other characters. We're just focused on Stephen, who is crying in the in the changing rooms. When he looks up, he sees Discover Thyself written in... Greek. Greek again and so that makes me think that that conversation took place in the changing room where are you naked hey changing room <laughs> and again almost certainly to my mind like that's a shower moment or a changing room moment that he's sitting in there in that moment of sadness and with little tears streaking down his face of course he doesn't want to get changed poor thing yeah. the last thing you want to do when you find out you're the heavily christian homosexual is change with a load of the gender you fancy know. you know like come on load yeah. of the people you fancy after his realization uh in in contrast to the first morning that we meet him really young stephen does not rush down the stairs to meet the milkman you know perhaps he is embarrassed and then the next time he he sees him stephen's out on his bike and he spots a a little bird just in front of the wheel of the milk float and uh, the milkman is uh, making a delivery so the milk float is not moving but the bird is not moving either and uh, Stephen is standing there looking at the bird and watching the milkman come. Mm. And he should, knows that he should say, there is a sparrow. The, the script specifies it's a sparrow. He should say something to stop the milk float from rolling over the sparrow, but he's unable to get the words out. Mm. The milkman is quite patient as they go, but obviously he doesn't know what's going on. No, and Stephen's completely tongue-tied. Completely. Yeah. Um, and as a result... A tiny defenceless bird is is crushed neath the wheel of a milk float. And then we have to look at it, which I feel is unnecessary. Yes, I suppose. It probably could have been divined from just a shot of Stephen's horrified face. Yeah, on the sound or something. But yeah. you had to see guts out of a baby bird. We'd had a chat about what that sort of signifies. And I yeah. don't know if we don't know if we got anywhere. To to me, it is it's because the bird is an innocent creature. A loss of innocence for Stephen now that he is aware that he fancies the milkman. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I went more for being willing to sacrifice a life rather than 
bring the truth on, right? Right. So the ability to go, oh, no, that's fine. Don't worry about it, you know? Well, to remain silent instead of speaking the truth. And if he'd spoken the truth, yes. the life wouldn't have been sacrificed um, as a metaphor for his own. But I might be reading too far into it. I feel like yours... I feel given, like they both have... Yeah, yeah, but given how sledgehammer most of the metaphors are in this film, <laughs> I feel like we'll go more with the less subtle. Fair enough. And then following this he uh, goes to school and decides to be a non-cooperative in the words of Mr Cook and to resign his commission or whatever it is you do to leave the army cadets and join the sixth form remnant Mr Cook asks him if I'm beginning to wonder if you want to be a man at all because he's a pleb because Mr (laughs) Cook is a pleb Um, but yes and you know we've had tiny little mention of a man singing with the voice of a woman and now little other bits and pieces creeping in and beginning to wonder if you want to be a man at all is um, that classic thing of leaving a space for the brain to answer that question and of course in Stephen's mind he's totally unsure at the moment of what being a man means so his brain is just going maybe I'm both maybe I'm none you know yes uh, looking not frightened but very very stayed he describes him as uh, i've always looked up to you he says yes to the teacher he says as a as an english norm which yeah. i think is very interesting because well to the stephen that we meet at the beginning an english norm is a would be a, a compliment if yeah. somebody described him as an english norm he would be delighted i imagine this is what he has aspired to yeah but i really think that in this context it's an absolute massive read i think it's a derogatory term that's the best he can do given that he still respects authority but is also going through some stuff yes you know yes no, it's, it's, it's a, a low a low younger Stephen would have considered a compliment. it isn't a compliment like there's no way no. in which being a norm is a is a good you know is a is a complimentary thing it's another authority figure of which and certainly not the last telling Stephen that he's never really fit in and they don't know what to do with him and he's not like the other boys yes. in effect for all of his desperate effort. Yes, exactly. And he's sort of accepting it. So we get this lovely bike ride that looks like it's fresh from a bit of Collier Shaw photography. Please go and look up their work. It's wonderful. Yeah, we'll put some on the Instagram yes, account yeah. after this goes out. But this is Stephen's liberation from manhood, right? He's yeah. basically been given a free pass by a guy that he did respect to go oh, maybe I'm not a man at all in the way that you are, and goes on this lovely bike ride where it's the first time we actually see him looking happy. The Pin Vin, Pin Fen letter has fallen off, revealing the truth. Well, I mean, revealing an earlier state, revealing something that has been suppressed. Yes, but then sadly haunted by the gay demon and falls off his bike. Yeah. (laughs) Every day. And then you get this... Another, well, I mean, it's a it's a film that's really full of extraordinary sequences. I think that really really stick in the mind and are really quite strange and eerie about uh, this sequence coming up. And I think I think this is actually a decent point to talk about. Is this a horror film? Why are we talking about Penders Fen um, on this podcast? To to me. Pendus Fen is not a horror film uh, in in any way, really. It's a haunted film, uh, but uh, but uh, to me, it doesn't fulfil the expectations of a of a of a, ho- of a horror film. And if you go into it thinking of it in those terms, I feel like you might be a little disappointed. But this sequence coming up, 
after Stephen's crash is to me the closest visually and thematically it gets to being a horror film, to being horrifying. And I know you had different views on that. Yeah, I do think the whole situation is horrifying. He's consistently met with horrifying scenes. Um, And again, it's socially horrifying rather than horror as a trope, although it's deeply folk horror, in my opinion. Mm. Um, Folk horror has this, uh, the creeping sin, I feel like, is (laughs) is the thing that makes folk horror folk horror. And you can go absolutely wild with it and go full Wicker Man, but you can go the whole of the first half of Midsummer with it, where mm. nothing, well, obviously a load of bad stuff happens, spoilers, but <laughs> nothing inherently horror, right? Specifically actual horror happens. But it is life horror, and it's stuff that, again, it's folk, right? It's the lives of the people. And I do think, and again, this this next sequence, yes, it's a horrifying moment, and it's jarring given that the rest of the film we've basically been looking at something we could watch on a Sunday after after you know after yeah. Christmas dinner. I mean, it's a bit gay for that, but you know, we certainly now gay you Christmas could, dinner. Gay Christmas dinner. Um, I mean, yes, sorry. I mean, it's a bit gay for 1974. Yeah, I'm not. not <laughs> me- I'm not meaning to imply that there's something unsuitable about homosexuality at Christmas. <laughs> but there is. I, I suppose there is the um, the sense of there being something hidden underground, yeah. hidden in the soil, is a folk horror motif. Yeah. If you'd like, you know, that there's something that you can't quite trust. The countryside. And also dreams are something that a lot of people can access. Yes. You know, that a lot of people can be haunted by. And the whole village is haunted by the presence of this underground um, scientific doodah. Yes, Arne says at the meeting, what is it hidden beneath this shell of lovely earth? Yes, exactly. Um, Everybody's got secrets. Everybody's got stuff that they're hiding. Every character we meet is hiding something. You know, and this dream. And again, are you ready for the dream? Yeah, yeah. Let's go on to the dream. If I put my dream interpretation hat on... Well, I'll quickly run through what happens in it, just in case any of our listeners mm. have not seen it, and then correct me if I've missed out any points, and then I'd be delighted for you to interpret it for us. So Stephen falls off his bike, and then he stands up and he walks through a hedge, walks through a, a gap in a hedge, into the grounds of a stately home, some sort of large mm-hmm. English formal garden. Yeah. And there's there's lots of, of people, girls and women, but I think there's a few men there as well. There's a big gathering of, of, of folk. Any mm-hmm. men there? Uh, the only man there is the man doing the cutting. The man doing the cutting. So there's a man in the middle, middle of a clearing in a in a hedge, with, where sort of like where a sundial would be. Yeah. There's a man with a little sort of... It's uh, an old tree. Old tree stump station there. And, uh, and he's got a, a large, sharp blade... It's a carving knife. Carving knife, big, big carving knife, mm. and uh, and he is cutting the hands off of the congregation. The congregation, yeah. the people around him who are going up happily and smiling, and having their hands cut off, without seeming to be in any kind of discomfort or no. pain. And there's, there's there's almost no noise at all, apart from the rhythmical thump of the um, of the knife hitting the woodblock <laughs> as their hands are lopped off. And everybody is smiling and happy, and uh, it is the, the the next appearance, the second appearance of the mother and father of England from the newspaper clipping. Yes. The uh, morality campaigners are there and are welcoming, are beckoning young Stephen to join the flock. Is that yes. is that a reasonable? Yes, I would go with that. I would say that partially it reads like, I mean, okay, here's um, 
me sharing something personal now because the listeners don't really know much about us at all but i am absolutely terrified of morris dancers always have been they they massively frighten me i'm a huge fan of all things folk and law and folklore but um morris dancers absolutely don't come near me with those bells i i i have to run um so it does look like the beginning of a may dance or something where um morris dancers might be involved there's a lot of uh, it looks like a church gathering as well. It's a bit like, let's have our lessons outside today. So to me, it's the blending of... Um, it's it's Stephen trying to conscience the mix of old religion and new religion in his mind. Um, so the people that represent England, the big old English country house represents England, you know, people and ideals that are his absolute iconic moment, mixing with, essentially, the Ladybird Book of Pagan Practice. Um, we then have people having so again the symbolism of having hands chopped off is interesting there's quite a bit of blood on the log it is really gory and again referencing midsummer here it has that suddenly there's blood moment you know where we haven't actually seen much blood we saw a dead bird that one time but we haven't really seen violence yet and suddenly there's blood in amongst all this kind of cleanliness but no one's wearing white so we're not in angel territory. We're in yellow territory, which is a mid-ground. We're outside, which is not the safety of the house or the safety of a church. There's a man doing all the chopping, which I feel like, given that he's not sure if he wants to be a man, and he's then just in a crowd of women being mm. beckoned in to a crowd of women to also have his hands chopped off by universal mum and dad. You know, it's, there's a lot going on from there. And he, he, he sort of... We know he's horrified, but the little girl is the one whose hands we see essentially get chopped off, right? Um, A little girl comes up and she is absolutely overjoyed. And I feel like there's this moment of him seeing himself in the little girl, right? Or wanting to see himself in the little girl, certainly. And again, disconnecting. But also the whole scene is horrifying. So, yeah, lots to unpack. Lots to unpack for poor Stephen, who's not doing well. (laughs) Oh, sorry. One more thing. About hands being chopped off. So one, often hands are chopped off when you've stolen, right? In other cultures. Um, Very old medieval England, um, it was also a punishment to lop off a hand if you'd stolen something. But also there's this idea in a bit of dream theory that it is about the things that we grab for, the things that we hold on to um, are represented by hands and what happens to our hands. So if your hands are being chopped off, you're no longer permitted to reach for the things you wanted. I can see that. And because he's just left the cadets, that's an element of his sense of mm-hmm. self has been stripped away. You know, he's had yeah. this sexual awakening or sexual uh, dreaming. But uh, to me, the mutilation at the Grand Country House is a representation of the violence done by the English system, if you'd like this okay. thing, this idea that Stephen, the Stephen at the beginning, as I keep having to delineate, Bought into wholeheartedly, right? It's, yeah. it's the violence that it does to people like Stephen, people who don't fit in to this, you know, this idea. Mm. Uh, and it's the violence that is done with with people's enthusiastic consent, right? And that people don't even seem to realise yeah. the the terrible things that have been done to them. Um, yeah, I say that it's no it's no coincidence to me that the the you know, mother and father of England are there beckoning people in. It is it is their worldview yes. that does this, and Stephen is horrified by this because he's not quite so sort of indoctrinated into this myth of an England, if you'd like. Yeah. A big a big part of this 
whole the, the the whole thing for me is a dismantling of the these myths of little old England. Yeah. Um, but it turns out none of this is real. No. Good job, Thankfully. sexy Milky Man is there. Milky Joel. Oh, Milky Joel. <laughs> yes, it turns out that young Stephen was so distracted by his freedom, he crashed straight into Joel's milk float. And yeah. Presumably knocked his head or something, and it gave him these strange visions. Yes, and an excuse to feel up the milkman. Yeah, well, he comes to, and he's sort of rather grasping Joel's muscular milk-lifting arms. <laughs> A little bit too tightly. Yeah, to the point of where Joel has to say, look, I just, I'm helping you up, and that's all, with a very firm tone, like, <laughs> can you not keep that's touching me all. like that? That's all. Yes. Meaningful look. He's very much straight, poor Stephen, and that awful, awful, awful pit of the stomach feeling of someone in that situation seeing that Joel has his girlfriend in the milk float is just such a horrible teenage moment of, uh, I'll be sick because you obviously don't like me, you like that one, you know? <laughs> um, even worse, even more so if, uh, yeah, in his situation, gut-wrenching. I don't think Joel is cruel or unkind no. here but in some ways that makes it worse yeah yeah definitely yeah, definitely. yeah, yeah. anyway yeah. poor Stephen. he's having a rough i mean I, I don't know what sort of time frame all this is happening for him uh, but he's having a rough time of it and it's not going to get wait well, it is going to get better it's going to get so much better but before <laughs> it gets better it is going to get worse for him yes because he goes home and he's, he's wanting to check up on this pen pen pin vin Pen, fin, pen, mm. fin thing. So he's looking for the the place name book that he knows yes. that his father has, rummaging through his uh, father's bookcase that mentioned very briefly because we both independently made notes on. We did. I it, said every book is already old. And I said it just it it really looks uh, like a vicar's bookcase. Yeah, but he doesn't... I imagine they actually went into a, a rectory rather um, and just went. Could you mind? We just need one scene where you write a heretic text. Yes. <laughs> Because yes, he does not he does not find the place name book. It turns out that's been lent to Mr. Ran, but he does find his father's thesis or his father's research notes yeah. on a work that he's writing called uh, "The Buried Jesus." Yes. And Stephen is a good Christian boy, but Stephen doesn't like to, well Stephen doesn't like to think about anything too challenging to the orthodoxy. I no. Think there. Um, whereas his father is cheerfully heretical. Yes. So he goes to get the book back cause from Mr. Arn, and <laughs> uh, I really like the line, my husband's what people call a paranoid, which is very sweet. Um, yes. And when we when we meet, the, almost every time we see one of the Arns, they are working away in their garden, yes. toiling away. They are the embodiment of 70s living on the land, countryside life that was idealised, but also like... They're nearly hippies. They don't have quite enough hair. Yeah. But they're nearly, you know, they have those ideals. There's certainly um, a whiff of the counterculture about both yeah, of the Arns. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, I also like um, Mr Arn saying to Stephen, um, have you got a hankering to join the join the dark side? Yes. Uh, sorry, to join the underside. The underside of society. A hankering to join the underside, yes. I find that Mr. Arne is written as a Shakespearean character. You know, the Shakespearean characters that turn up as an aside, that are like the political 
interface, if you like, for a Shakespearean audience. Yes, yes, um, yes, commenting obliquely on the current... Yeah. Yes, and as I, I touched on before, the idea that uh, Mr. Arne is... Mr. Rudkin is, is, a, is an insert character for, for, for David Rudkin's uh, views. And what I like about this idea is that he had borrowed the place name book and said he doesn't, he gives it back to Stephen so he doesn't need it anymore. He's got yeah. what he needed. And I, I like the sort of oblique suggestion that he might be, might be writing Pender's Fen, given, as I said, that um, it was that incident that spawned the writing of this thing. I, I like the idea that Mr. Arne's thing that he's working on is a version of the thing that we are watching. Yeah. Um, but as well as this, he also gives Stephen a little bit of a, a, a pep talk about disobedience, chaos and anarchy. Yeah. Fair play. Mr. Arne says, oh, here I am radicalising you or something. You know, your yeah. father would hate it. And Stephen says, well, actually, I, I'm not so sure that he would. You know, I don't know. Yeah, don't know about that. <laughs> don't know about that. Whether I don't he would. know him at all. Yes. <laughs> um, so then, he, you know, Stephen finds the name in the book. It's known as Pin Vin Woe. Pender Fen in 1187, and then Pender's Fen. His dad's so supportive and cute. And the headmaster's a bastard. So the dad starts writing, like, basically a, hey, so it looks like uh, my son's decided to go in a different direction with his yes, life. Yeah, Stephen not was, was proud of, of the uniform. I can only assume that he has found something else to be yeah. proud of. Please leave him alone. Leave him alone. Stop worrying about this. It's, it's funny because his father is a. A comfort and a support and a terribly understanding. At the same time as he is continually undermining yeah. all of Stephen's belief and faith, it's, it is a shock to find out to, for him to find out that his uh, father is a heretic. Yeah, and the headmaster has this awful speech with him on the basis of the letter, doesn't he? Yes. I didn't make many notes on that speech. I think he was just annoying me. I've said in the headmaster's study, even the headmaster doesn't think Stephen has ever quite fit in. Yes, is the note that I've made on this. It's another, it's another person asking him if he's turning away from normality, normality from you know the the beautifully simple uh, system where you do your bit for king and country, yeah, for the school and for yourself, Uh, and all of this stuff that um, Stephen, with his hankering to join the underside. (laughs) <laughs> is is rejecting yeah um however much it pains him and it does it does pain him to do it we then come to oh a really gorgeous shot of two trees in a storm that can never quite touch that i thought was a really nice moment and there's been a lot of beautiful countryside sort of casually thrown in because there's this is england there's right? a lot this of is... static shots of static shots of the countryside uh, with weather. with narration over you know in, yes. internal monologue or similar from people and it, it reminded me of oh, I suppose it, it anticipates given that it predates them by 20 years but it it put me in mind of the Patrick Keeler Robinson films uh, from the sort of I think from about 1994 to about 2004 he made a series of films about the problem of London <laughs> and then the problem of England which are static mostly static shot, shots of landscape Mm-hmm. Um, with narration over. I feel like it is certainly plausible that Keeler had um, seen this and that it might have been an influence. I'll put a, a still from one you know, up on the Instagram after we record this as well, so you can have a look at that. But um, it, was a, it, it was quite a strong feeling, which surprised me. I didn't expect to see that here. Yeah, and I mean, I mean yeah. Uh, Stephen's not fully sold on religion, is he? 
He's not really fully sold on anything. He's incredibly no, anxious. No, I mean, he would he would tell you that he was, but again, he probably hadn't ever really thought about it. No, I just think he would love someone to give him some very basic rules to live by. Yes. That would be incredibly helpful for poor Stephen. Just to go, here you go, you do A, B, C, and then if you want, you can do D. You can tell that he's quite profoundly shocked with these conversations with yeah. his father and having found his father's work that he didn't know, obviously didn't know about the buried Jesus uh, no. that he was working on. So they, these are new conversations for him. It just hasn't, he hasn't questioned any of this stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is good that he is now beginning to. So we're running through a storm and when I'm running through a storm, I dive into the the nearest abandoned house yeah i don't know what that building is i've got <laughs> notes on it that says it's a disused barracks or an old classroom or something yeah, or it yeah. has the look of an, an official building of some kind that has been left to uh, the degradation of time as in it it's got bricks and wood we'll put it that way yes do we meet an old man we meet an old man in a wheelchair who um is instantly recognizable and yeah. recognized by young stephen as Sir Edward Elgar, the uh, composer of the Dream of Gerontius, that um, young Stephen was rhapsodizing hmm. and uh, eulogizing in the uh, opening scenes of the yes. film. His favorite composer. And that particular piece that you mentioned. Yes, the Dream of Gerontius. Where Stephen was, had been writing about how it was this beyond elevated, beautiful piece. Turns out Elgar reveals it was written to the tune of a dog whining that wanted a bone. Yes, the the, the gaze of God um, yes. in in music, which um, young Stephen takes to be a terribly transcendental, well, no, uh, yeah, terribly transcendental and glorious and wonderful piece. Yeah. <laughs> um, not a dream sequence, even though it seems like one. Turns out Elgar's a bastard as well. Uh, every single elder in Stephen's life is a bit of a bastard, apart from maybe his dad. Yes, this is a, an interesting scene here. We talked about this off mic, and uh, I was saying that it's the most opaque sequence, this one, for me. Even though I adore it, I think it's a wonderful performance from Graham Lehman, who plays Elgar in this. Yeah. I always struggle to interpret I always struggle to interpret it. I got quite a lot from it, possibly, and I will say this is only the second time I've seen this, I last saw it for the first time uh, about three years ago. And this scene absolutely just didn't touch me in any way the first time. I actually felt like it was slightly shoehorned. But actually, on second viewing, if you look at it as Stephen having a psychotic break, which you know I love doing, but if you look at it that way, it still makes sense. But we'll look at it for now in the magical realism of Pender's Fen itself manifesting an image that it knows... Stephen will listen to as in like most people would get an angel turns out he can't quite have just an angel he gets his angel right his his idol his version of a vision of Jesus which is uh, Elgar Elgar is the first adult to show an emotion in front of him he reminisces in front of Stephen he reminisces about his dead wife and a birthday party and a child getting up to sing a piece that he wrote for his dead wife and starts to cry in front of Stephen. And Stephen's just looking at him with his mouth open, going, are yeah. they allowed to do this? Is this a real situation? He definitely knows he's dead. He's self-aware. He knows he's dead. He knows the secrets that he wrote in life will probably have outlived him. He knows that um, 
you know, I did look it up about whether or not Elgar was gay because I wondered if that's where they were going. And there was a theory floating around that he was having an affair with Richter. But it was based on one postcard, so I think we can give the poor man an, an excuse to use the word love. He he certainly had intense male friendships. This yeah. is a, a matter of, of record, right? But a homosocial environment, like that does not preclude homosexual relations, but it also does not necessarily imply. As far as I can understand, and I, we, I think we both looked at it, there's mm. not really enough to tell us him being long dead and not appearing to us in a dream you know it's not conclusive one way or the other as far as I can no tell. and I only mention it in case from a writing perspective this was intended to be that Stephen had inadvertently picked an icon that struggled with the same things that he was struggling with just you know seeing or feeling something in the emotion of the music that he believed to be the voice of God that is in fact the voice of truth right so it's God versus truth in the entire film and I mean, also, I think it is no coincidence that Stephen so passionately identifies with the dream of Garantius and the question that he asks right at the beginning of of the film about what happens to the soul after death yes. and uh, his first lines, which I did write down. Yes, oh, my country, I am one of your sons, but how can I show that love? Yeah. Uh, which is something that he grapples with all the way through. And the whole film is haunted by Elgar, so it makes yeah. sense to Yeah, the be... only music that we hear. And there's not much music in the whole thing. No, exactly. Um, it's sharing a secret between the hills, yourself and Elgar. Like, that is a proper English countryside moment. Yes. Isn't it? Yes. Um, yes, because he was speculating in the earlier scene about why he falls off his bike when he does, before yeah. he has the, that nightmare vision of the of the hands lopping off and doing the de- and doing and doing the actions you can't see and then you said oh it's because we hear we hear a sort of whistling noise which there is, is a whistling behind him while he's doing his liberation bicycle that's sort of like a whistle or a hum and then he sees the apparition of his weird nightmare beast um flashing up to haunt him but then you know and yes and elgar says if you hear a whistling yes exactly it's, it's only it's only me i've come back to look at the world the beautiful world. The beautiful world, and then points to the brickwork, which I really like, and it's good food for thought. I imagine it's a moment of there's beauty in everything, but it could also mm. be read that he's so used to looking at the expanse, the, the great beyond, that actually just a simple wall is a very beautiful thing yeah. to come back to. But, uh, but Elgar lets young Stephen into a secret. He asks, have they cracked my enigma hmm. yet? Right, the... Uh, uh, probably his most famous piece of work, I think, the Enigma Variations. Yeah. And the the idea that they are variations on a theme which was kept secret, hence the name, the Enigma Variations. And, um, yeah. And uh, I did look into this. Nobody has quite cracked what that tune is. That it's a, yeah. there's a secret. You know, but but uh, Elgar tells young Stephen but he says you know don't it's a secret it's don't a sing it don't out sing loud. it out loud exactly so so Elgar will hums a bit of his variation and 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 tells Stephen to play the tune secretly in his head and listen to the two of them together so it's a it's a revelation to Stephen it's a it's a it's a confidence yes to Stephen but also um the idea of straddling two worlds right yeah your inner and your outer yeah and the as you say Elgar knows that he is uh, dead he wants to know whether yeah. anybody in the alive in the world has cracked this code yet. Yeah. Um, we have a little moment where, you know, Stephen comes away from here and the next shot of him is just 
showing the viewer that Elgar's definitely dead, which yes. I think is sweet. He's looking up his dates in a book. But then, Mother, driving with Blandy, Blandy, Blanderson <laughs> in the car with the eternal threat of Tesco. The eternal threat of, you don't want to end up working at Tesco, do you? Yeah. Which I find infuriating. There is, it is a drumbeat that we haven't, that has been running for a little while that we haven't mentioned, but every time people say that he doesn't fit in, or, you know, when he mm. speaks to the headmaster, when he speaks to Mr. Cook, uh, as well as suggesting that, you know, he's turning his back on these great English traditions. Yeah. The other thing that they are saying is that um, it'll make life very hard for you. Yeah. And um, the mother has an innate fear of death by being working class, right? She speaks about the machine and the factory, and she's seen, yes. what was it, ambulances? All day long here, the ambulances are never still. Yeah, so frightening. And they're watching sort of almost stock footage-style fi filming of workmen outside a faceless building. You know, it's mm. all quite um, distressing, but it also feels weirdly propaganda-y. Yes, well, it ties in, for, yeah. weirdly enough, with what um, Mr Arn says at the meeting about feeding, and, and his father also mentioned... The idea of feeding Moloch, right? The, mm. the, the sort of the, the money demon, if you yeah. like, uh, serving Mammon instead of God. Yeah, you become part of this machine and you become subservient to mm -hmm. these forces. And it's, and it's not a good thing. Disgusting birthday cake that I sort of want. It's a 1970s pink and white number. Oh, looks cracking. Made <laughs> me want cake. But they, you know, as well as the cake, his parents have a An a present for him, which is, of course, a letter from his parents. Yeah. Do you know how I tell my my eighteen year old adopted son that he's adopted in how, how the least appropriate way I can at his birthday party? How do you do that, darling? You are like the English language. You have foreign parents too. That's that's how not to do it. That is literally the seventies equivalent of step forward. Everyone who's got like who knows who their biological parents are or oh, where are you going Stephen like don't do it there's better ways to do that anyway I, I never took it as quite so insensitive oh, as that it's just a man who doesn't give a straight answer to anything and we know that mm -hmm. he never says a yes or a no at any point in the film no. then going what's the most awkward way round I can do this without <laughs> just saying we have a thing to tell you. You are adopted. Here's who did it. Yeah. You know, yeah. and we are the people that adopted you. But yes. no, we have to be. We have to make it a little tiny sermon, and it's a nice character point. Yes, no, you, also... you're right. Everything is a little sermon for him. You, yeah. you are right. But yeah, because he also says even Elgar had some Welsh blood. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Which is is really nice. It's sweet. It's you know, I know you like that. Lady Gaga. Lady Gaga's <laughs> a little bit Italian, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's stripping away another pillar of Stephen's identity. <laughs> yeah. He is not a true-born English boy, after all. Mm. Um, you know, if you think about all that he thought he was... Yes, good point. ...at the start, he isn't. But Poor the, bastard. Then you get this wonderful scene where he goes next door... Yes, ...and talks I to know. his neighbour, and this is, there's, a, there's real vulnerability in Stephen sometimes and this yeah. is one of the uh, this is one of the moments where it comes out it's incredibly sweet he starts to speak to the neighbour about well essentially he comes out twice doesn't he yeah or as close as he possibly could like yeah, yeah it, it's, it's it's unambiguous he just 
circumlocutes it a little. Yeah, it's um, can, can, ho- can, can homosexuals yes. have children? Can homosexuals have children? To which she says, "Well, I I hear they make very good fathers actually, which yeah. is very sweet because you know it's open minded and it's the seventies and we've got a we're only just legal, you know." <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I hear they make very good fathers actually, and then Stephen immediately following that with. I'd like to have children. I want to have children. He yeah. really sounds impassioned in a way that, yes. you know, it feels real. Um, but then he's, and again, just a little nod to my suspicion that there is spectrum behaviour. Um, just to go, why haven't you got any kids? Or something, you know, like to be like, where are your children? I'm, I'm sorry for what I hear. And she thinks it's that he's she's been swearing because she's been digging up the garden. Oh yes. And says and is going sodding brutes. I'm never going to be free of these blasted things. And it's um, a witch. It's a witch crouched over her garden and swearing at yeah. it. I can relate to that. No, and I think it's interesting. You can say given. Well, I mean, I'll, he he says no. I'm, I hear that you can't have children. Yes. You know, and and she is. It, it's an extremely blunt. Yeah. Thing. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, but it's you not know the what? sort of thing that one sort of throws at. Let's be more blunt. Let's go with my womb rejects. We got one started. It fell out. My womb rejects. Yeah, but again, they're talking on a wavelength. Yeah, right? no, they him. understand each other. There's nothing yeah. harsh. I mean, it, yeah, there is something harsh about it. But there's, there's <laughs> it's n- the worst way to describe a miscarriage in the world. But yeah. it's <laughs> it's but it's it's factual. He he understands it. Neither of them seem remotely upset or offended by this exchange. No, and it's, it's the exact a, it's opposite. It's a nice bonding of, thing for them. Yeah, and it's the exact opposite of the way his dad speaks. Yeah. Can you imagine his dad trying to explain a miscarriage? He, I mean, it would take him twenty-five d- minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, and it would be beautiful. Yeah, and it would be yeah. kind, but it wouldn't be good for Stephen. No, it would be confusing for Stephen. Yeah. Uh, yeah. She's very kind and he's very kind and it's just a nice moment. Well, it's I interesting think. that we see her in the garden again and we see yeah. we see her often in the garden, which is another for... It's a, it's, a, it's a kind of nurturing and it's a kind of growth. Yeah. And the Empress card, yeah. But it's, 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 a, it's a nurturing and a growth and a, almost like a family because you've got the cat as well mm-hmm. that is outside of the... Two up, two down. Two point yes. four children, mother and father. To get it's a it's another glimpse at a possible life and future yeah. and and mode of being that is um, it's it's a real emotional center point of the film. It's a real moment. And, yeah. Hmm. Then the other thing that he says mm. after this is, I was adopted because he says, "Can you adopt?" There we go. The two and, coming out. And he says, "I was trying, you know, they're trying, but there's just not enough children." Yes. And then and then he says, "I was adopted." You know, which is new information for him that he just blurts because that's how he does it. He, yeah. he is, and she asks him how he feels about this, and he says he feels sad, but gladder than sad. But he says that it's he now he he thought he knew who he was, but now there are unknown elements and possibilities. Yes, and I, I believe you know it's it's sincere. It rings true. It's an extraordinarily positive way of looking at yes. it, and a positive moment for him, and a chance for growth and. Not just a chance for growth, evidence of growth. Yeah. And, yeah, it's it's wonderful. And then... <laughs> then, then we we're go brought back, back to, school. to a harsh reality at the school, in a scrum of a different kind, where your bastard classmates put ribbons in your hair. Yeah, pink ribbons at that. Mm. Yes, we get an extraordinarily powerful scene where he stands in the middle of a ring of all of his classmates who I think are in... Are they in military gear? I think they're in the fatigues. Tops, uh, the yes, green uh, yes, pullovers yes. and whatnot. 
and we get a Stephen Eye view of all of them as we pan round. He meets their gaze. This is the thing. He does, but I found it. It was the scene that really stuck with me through the whole from the whole film, the first watch. The one scene that really stuck with me and actually made me consider it to be a too heartbreaking a film to revisit. And it actually did upset me the first time I watched it because him being in the centre of that scrum, which should be and has been a dream fantasy, to have it as the reality and you're being emasculated in that way and then branded, if you like, with bows and then to stand up and face everyone and watch them as they realise they've broken a person. And it doesn't, and again, Ben described this off mic that it's not necessarily a bad break, but it's certainly that feeling, that sense you get when you've pushed something too far yeah. as a young person. And eat one by one, as the camera pans, they lose their smiles, particularly Honeybone, who keeps his smirk for a long time and then it sort of just fades. And everybody looks guilty, but not quite, or like loathing and guilty. And then Stephen walks away. You know, he stands, he looks at everyone doesn't say a word, doesn't change his facial expression and walks away. But he's unbowed, he's standing tall, he meets their gaze and he walks away. And it's painful and something is broken, yeah. but it's not... It is ultimately to his benefit, even if it is a painful and un, a, a horribly unpleasant yeah. thing yeah. to happen. It's a great scene. See. Then we get the oh, Reverend Franklin's extraordinary soliloquy come sermon mm. on... The old gods. Um, he is sitting with a woman whose husband has just Oh, yes, passed. before that. Thank you, yes. He's very clearly into the old religion, Mr... Uh, sorry, mm. Reverend... Reverend Franklin, yes. he He's with this wife and he's saying, you know, I'm terribly sorry. He goes to put the blanket up over the dead man's face and yeah. she refuses. And he says this... this um, he tries to be beautiful again, you know? Yeah. What does he say? It's something like, we we pray for a reunion on another shore. And she's like, sod that, he's had his time, we, basically. We neither of us held out any hope of that. We both have our time and his is... His is done. End. His is at an end, yeah. yeah. His is done, yeah. Um, to which, and it's a really odd scene, actually, because it's a mark of that old religion attitude that she has, right? She's not into the, yeah, we're all going to bugger off to Valhalla or any of the exciting things <laughs> it's much more of the practical man of the land folkloric he's now worm food and yeah. I think we both know that you know it's a knowing look to someone that she knows isn't I was going to say isn't a real rector but isn't like a an old school 100% all the time Christian well the, the I mean the implication here of course is that he doesn't believe in heaven Yes, uh, because exactly. he because uh, when she says we neither of us held any hope of that, Mr. Franklin sort of nods yeah, uh, like, yeah, and looks fair. down and looks guilty <laughs> and sort of acknowledges that he should have been better than that. But he's also unable to sit with that emotion for long. I think he lasts about three beats in silence before he's like, "Welp," <laughs> and uh, gets out of there. Doesn't want to be around the body. In fact, I feel like he's probably leaving to give them more of a conversation between themselves. But it still feels like he can't sit with actual feelings. For too long that uh, was just something that i felt he has to go outside he has to be with the land again then yeah he he's also he's also i think a, a little embarrassed because yes. he's made a he's, he's, he did a boo-boo he did he did a faux pas you know he um yeah he went for the conventional platitude of the vicar and um he, 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 gets wrong. he yeah he got it wrong yeah um so now we have quite a, <laughs> a lengthy chat with non-committal rector dad Talking about Joan of Arc as a witch to Stephen. Yes. 
Well, Stephen wants to know if when his father heard the call from God to yes. serve in the ministry, whether it was a real voice that he had. And he said all voices are real because he's uh, annoying. Is, <laughs> he's not wrong. But then I said that I said that when we were watching it, and you just shouted out, "He's you." You shouted at me. I did. Uh, it's, it's true. It's because it's something you would say and it's irritating. Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> the old religion, the primitive religion of the workers and fields is how he describes it. Yeah. But he's, it's actually a very beautiful scene for all I'm taking the mick. It's a beautiful scene where Stephen's father implies that when Joan of Arc was burned, um, she was screaming Jizu, Jizu into it. And we don't know if she was seeing... Jesus or somebody of her a god of her own land or a child or you know any yes. of these and, things. and the implication is of course that that difference is artificial that it doesn't really matter yeah and Jesus but... is anyone old or new religion yes absolutely um the old gods haunt our land is a nice phrase from that scene um and also one that I liked that you pointed out was he's displeased other bishops in his time you know yes well yeah now's a good time uh, to talk about this, given what we've been talking about, Stephen's sexuality. Yes. And something that only struck me this time, and I have seen this many, many times over the years, but Stephen's mother's strong reaction to Stephen's suggestion that there's something wrong with Mr. Owen and he must be mm. unnatural, and that is why they cannot have any children. And then, of course, as we found out, as we now know, Stephen is adopted, and it doesn't necessarily follow that Mr. and Mrs. Franklin couldn't have children they may just have chosen to adopt it may have been able to biologically produce children but they may not have been and it, a couple of things made me wonder whether Stephen's father Mr Franklin here is also a homosexual it was the line when he talks about a late spring often proves true yeah. uh, whether he's talking from personal experience here that he seems so clued up he seems to he seems to know about Stephen's desires before Stephen himself is aware of them um, and he's so kind and understanding about it and then yes that line that you mentioned that he's displeased many bishops in his time yes because yes Stephen doesn't think the bishop would like to hear all this talk about the old gods <laughs> uh, just struck me this time that perhaps just perhaps there's something there's something there yeah I also enjoy Reverend Franklin describing Jesus as a revolutionary legislator and demon fused. Yes. Um, which is what we are aiming for for Stephen, really. Well, this is also an, uh, a good examination and example of their faiths, but also how Stephen's father has clearly thought about all this stuff. Yeah. And Stephen clearly hasn't. He's just accepted. <laughs> yeah. You know, he's been taught this, and this is how... It is, and we believe in God, and this is what God is, and this is who Jesus is, and he's just accepted all of that, and he's sort of built it into himself. But he's never had to think about it in the way that his father so plainly has and mm. continues to. And in fact, expresses a wish that Stephen continue his work. He says, where fathers fail, we look to our sons to succeed. Yes. Um, in trying to sort of square all of this, you know? Uh, and he says, well, I crucify him daily in the church, and it's... Stephen says, why do you stay frocked? Yeah, because it's about the self and the non-self. <laughs> so he stays frocked as the self and the non-self. Only in the non-self can we survive these days. Um, his dad is speaking like the writer. Those. Yes, but I think the non-self is displayed at Mrs King's with when the old man has died. Yes. He is playing the role of the vicar, the yes. non-self vicar. 
And then, yeah, and then walks away like he's betrayed himself. Yeah. yeah. There's no knowing what you might not inherit was the yes one you like. Yes, because um, he says, Stephen says, I'm not your chemical son. Mm. You know, I won't inherit that from you. And of course... Uh, you know that isn't how it works, is it? No, <laughs> you know, funny he, that he is his son, and uh, and this is of course where King Pender comes back in. Yes, the King of Midland, England, fighting against the machine. Yeah, the but machine. the machine being the new religion, right? Yeah, we've mentioned the old religion a lot, and the new religion is the machine, um, Watership Down style, Fern Gully style, ripping through the old ways <laughs> yes with the new developments and the yes. new systems and coming away from the village he says pagan he correctly tells us that the word pagan comes from pagana which is of the village yeah the the small scale local things which are so important in this film all the way through mm. and young stephen asks him did pender die here yes and he says who says that he is dead you know yes Mystery. <laughs> so, chapter five. His cry is the piece of choice. Yes, I think it's Elgar again. It would make Elgar, sense if it was. Elgar, his cry is the weapon of choice. Uh, allowing himself to put emotion into his playing for the first time. We've seen him play organ before. Lol, lol, playing the organ. Yes, there's definitely something, again, from the big book of Dr. Freud, that yes. Stephen works out his emotional turmoil which is what we really are seeing here uh by playing with an organ playing on the yeah. organ uh whoops crack the church <laughs> but also of course something cracks something cracks in stephen yeah and something cracks in the land right yes. you know the, it is no coincidence that it is the floor that, that, yeah, that yeah. breaks and we are seeing underneath to something deeper to something older right? yeah which so, again all of this could be chemicals released from the factory. Yes, much like with Rosemary's Baby, I'm like we are assuming the supernatural in the broadest yes. sense. You know uh, that, that this is a real thing, but it is important, as you say. Yeah. Bear in mind that yes, this could all be. That could be actually yeah. Psychosis. All the things he thinks about. He meets Elgar soon after yeah. talking about Elgar, thinking about Elgar. He meets. He has the devil on his chest. He meets an angel in the field. There's a beautiful shot of oh. an angel behind him that he sees reflected in the in the yeah. pool and when he looks back it isn't there and this is all after talking about his dream about angels and yeah. demons and exactly um there is a little mirror next to him that goes black which always freaks me out and it's this idea i don't know it's entering hell through music right so the floor opens up more we've got the big black mirror he then sees what we assume to be jesus's feet in stigmata and they are moving slightly, which is so grotesque. I actually find it more distressing than the dream sequence with the hand chopping. Right. Maybe that's because I haven't spawned. But, like, there's something really horrifying. No, about I mean, being, I'm not, not disagreeing with you. Being crucified and still moving is horrifying. And we hear what is supposed to be the voice of Jesus uh, asking to be unburied. Yes. Right? Free me from this tree. Yes. Blah, freaky. Yes. Poor Stephen. But it's another, uh, the unburied thing. Yeah. Ties into his father's thesis, the title of which is The Buried Jesus. Yes, right? exactly. So there's an element of a desire to carry on his father's work. Yeah. And um, uh, actually, nice. he Stephen hunches at the organ at the end, lol, uh, like he's been crucified. Um, he does a little extra, extra leap. Um, and also in his playing, when he's playing on the organ, he goes off script a little bit. And yeah. you can see he brings in some dissonances and stuff. And this is him not 
following the path which is written out for him quite so exactly and exactingly as he would have done before. He brings in some of that dissonance and anarchy that um, Mr. Arm talks about, and in doing so, cracks something, yes. cracks yes. the floor. So now we have this um, this scene with the mother and father of England again. We're playing Jerusalem, the most pagan of all <laughs> Christian hymns. Um, well, it's Christian mysticism again, isn't it? It is. Because it's, it's William Blake did the words. Yeah, um, yeah, so yeah. Uh, they well, describe the second as a, school song. The second school that's, song. That's, that's what, it. yeah. Um, and again, it's two, it's straddling two worlds. It's the inner and outer, the inner self and the outer self. A true child of England, the true mother and father of England. Yes, are you, a, are you an English boy? It's a question. Are you an English boy? A true English boy. If we touch him, he'll vanish. It's written. It was a very odd set of lines that actually threw me a bit. It's, it's the idea that all of this is prophesied... And we're thrown into this as if it's a dream sequence, but we know it's not. We don't have any of the dream cues. We're just wandering around listening to Jerusalem <laughs> on the wind. And then, and yes, and, and, and the sounds, because as the hymn sort of fades out, we get this the diegetic sounds of the English countryside, yes, right? Yes, yes. Then we're going to have a little chat about not kink shaming, but if you're into fire, we like fire, yeah. Enjoying the burning. Like Joan of Arc. Like Joan of Arc, um, she wasn't in pain. She actually bloody loved it, is what they're implying. And then, yes, the child yes, of light. And then they ask him, are you a child of light? Yeah. Um, I think we cried in joy with a f- full stop between yes. each word is really sinister. Yes. I mean, they, were, they are very sinister figures. Yeah. Um, they're clearly up to no good, despite his sort of idolising of them earlier yes. as this the f- mother and father of England to keep everybody on the straight and narrow yeah and to you know to do what's best for everyone yeah and then he has a moment Stephen has a moment where he becomes um the world card from tarry where he says i am woman and man light with darkness mixed i am mud and flame and then they burn his picture uh i'm nothing special nothing pure yes um yeah which is an extraordinary statement to come from her, and there's real yeah. anguish in it, you know. Yeah, yeah. That, uh, that of everything that he's been through over the course of the, of the drama of yeah. the play, and um, and yes, if we can't have him, no one can. I think yeah, is the line, isn't exactly. it? Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yes, that their intentions are not. And so they get a pic. They take a picture of him, and then laughing maniacally, they set fire to it, and he starts to burn. Yes. Um, and then he summons Pender, right? Um, out of nowhere. Well, out of the land. Yes. Right? Pender appears. He he invokes Pender. Yes. Uh, King Pender, who, yes, appears by magic. Yeah. You know, and who sort of banishes those two, the the mother and the father yeah. of England, and and blesses young Stephen. Yes, he does refer to the father and mother of England as the sick father and mother who would have us children forever which is incredibly dark and again from a psychological perspective it's the idea of the good mother versus the bad mother like um, in Coraline right? Yeah. So the good mother is the one that always gives you sweets, the bad mother is the one that scolds you when you've been naughty they are the same person but the child brain can separate them into these two different entities and certainly to have Pender turn up as this strong father figure who is represented as old England and old land and old religion. Yes. Well, I mean, not, um, it's, it's, it, feels, it sounds like pedantry, but of course he's older than England itself. He's a king of yeah. Mercia. And um, the mother and father of England's 
shtick and the whole thing that he yeah. believes on but is and this as i said this sort of blood and soil patriotism is built around the idea that this that this stuff this idea of england and duty and nation are yes. ancient and eternal whereas pender's appearance and pender's the fact of pender and the and pender's being are telling us that there is another story in the soil that there yeah. is another inheritance there there's something else hidden under the earth yeah. that will crucially that will come when summoned like this in yeah. times of need it is available to you in mercia or northumbria or cornwall or wales or anywhere wherever yeah. you are that there is that there are contradictions and there are other stories in the in the land um and yeah. it, that that where you will belong and uh, Stephen is instructed to guard the flame of Old England as, you know, our sacred demon of ungovernableness. Yes. Great phrasing. He kind of takes it on pretty easy. Yes. You know, yes. because it's it, we've all been leading to this moment and it just seems like a logical progression for Stephen with these incredible shots, like rolling hill shots of... It kind of looks like something out of an Alan Garner novel. Like, it's it's just this patchwork hills rolling in front of him he's managed to find a viewpoint that is yeah just extremely beautiful view of english countryside and as the credits sort of start to loom there is um a, the sound of a plane in the background which is the first time that we hear anything actually real from the larger world yes the idea any, anything sort of man-made as yeah. well exactly yes I'm going to read, I've got the the script in front of me here at the back of that book, and um, yes, Pender's sort of last word, and the um, and the last words in the play are that, that King Pender puts his hand on Stephen's forehead mm. and says, Stephen, be secret, child, be strange, dark, true, impure and dissonant, cherish our flame, our dawn shall come, right? And then the stage instructions are, Stephen raises head to ask a question, Stephen stands alone on all the hill. And now he looks back across the land in shadow, that outer landscape of the earth and inner landscape of the head, across which this his journey has been made. It is a very physical reverse to that image of England with which we began, for now we look eastwards from these hill, those hills themselves, and night is coming. No soft choir music on the soundtrack now, but the actual sounds of evening on the earth. A lapwing, a distant train, the pulse of a factory below. As it happens, I say they come come out different, but they must have just recorded what was happening. Yeah, they would have just on the day had, at the yeah. time. Yeah, onto that landscape now. Stephen is walking slowly, thoughtfully away from us. Down, he is fortunate. Early and at the right time, he has been vouchsafed a meaning of that old question that he once glibly asked himself: What is to happen to the soul? Which shall prevail, the angel or the pandemonium, the sickness of power and obedience to power, or the sacred demon of ungovernableness? Nice. Which. It's odd is in the stage descriptions where no one will see it because, of course, yeah, that was... Yeah, but I think when you're making something like this, you're part of a thing, aren't you? You're part of a of a creation and you're part of a um, happening. Yeah. So it makes sense that it would be for you and it would complete <laughs> your... Yeah, because it, 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 yeah. it does fit, but it does mean that Stephen is chosen in a yeah. way. He's, you know, he's... You know, he is special. He is sought out for, if not greatness, then some, you know, he's yeah. sought out for, for something special, for, for something secret and, and important. Yeah. But then, of course, he's the hero of the piece. 
Yeah, the fool's journey. Yeah, yeah, he has been on a journey. Yeah. Right, I think that's it. Is there anything there that you feel that we haven't covered? No. Good, me neither. Good. What do you want to say then? Thanks for listening. Thank you very much for thank you very much for listening and for sticking with us. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, We do put a new podcast out every week at Haunted Picture Palace. That is Haunted underscore Picture underscore Palace. If you want to follow us on Instagram, we are available now on Spotify. Very fancy. You might be listening there now. In which case, ignore that message. Um, (laughs) Apple Podcasts and Stitcher and And we're on Google now. Google Podcasts, which I didn't. I didn't even know that was a thing. Didn't know it was a thing, but but we're we're on it. And of course, uh, hauntedpicturepalace.podbean.com. Excellent. which hopefully by the time you hear this we might have done something with yes it'll look prettier <laughs> hopefully um the next week's episode is about the craft hope you like craft it's the craft <laughs> the craft the rule of three everybody Not it's gonna be craft. one of my babies again and it's all about witches um i'm hoping you've seen it or we can't be friends see you next time <laughs> a bit harsh but thank you and bye. goodbye bye I was going to say, is that is the is this is that the scene where it where that peels off, or does that come later? No, that's later. Uh, bird death. <laughs> so yes, after um, you sound you sound sick. Just saying, bird death and laughing. Bird death. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yes, uh, after um, yes, occasionally one of them will attain a level of fame sort of slightly disproportionate to its original status. Yeah. Abigail's party was in the same strand. Kathy Come Home was a Wednesday play that was um, hmm. uh, that was the sort of predecessor of this strand. They renamed it Play for Today when they started airing it on days other than Wednesday. That isn't very interesting, is it? I'll cut that out. <laughs> yeah. Pinvent. Pinvent. Pin, 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 